You've tuned in to Supply Side Stories. The innovations, influencers, and breakthroughs defining the future of health and nutrition. Hello and welcome to another edition of Supply Side Stories. I'm Fran Schoenwetter, Director of Content Marketing at Informa Markets. Today we'll be talking about sustainable plant protein, uh, multiple sources for a variety of applications. In cooperation, Natural Products Insider and Supply Side Stories, our podcast today is supported by Cargill. Joining us today is Mark Fallon, Marketing and Business Development Manager and expert in plant protein with Cargill. Mark is a marketing strategist. He brings an entrepreneurial mindset to product development ideas for small and large brands alike. Welcome, Mark. Hello. Thanks, Brian. So let's let's begin, Mark. Um, first off, growth in the plant-based food sector is, is indisputable. We lots of statistical information and research, and uh, it's observable um, through product uh, sales data at shelf. Um, but from a product development standpoint, what are some of the specific food product categories where you're seeing the greatest growth, um, like cheese alternatives, meat alternatives, ice creams, desserts, yogurts, all kinds of other dairy products. Where Where is Cargill really seeing some of the, the greatest demand and growth? Sure. So in general, like in total, um, when you look at data from the Plant-Based Foods Association, um, the, res- the, the outputs from that suggest that the U.S. retail sales um, in the past year have grown by 11%, so bringing the total market value you know, to around uh, $4.5 billion U.S. dollars. And when we talk about you know, um, uh, you know, plant-based foods, typically people think right away about dairy alternatives and meat alternatives, uh, or plant-based dairy and plant-based meat. Um, today, the plant-based meat category alone um, is—it's uh, worth more. It's getting close to about a billion. It's worth about 800 million today, with sales up about 10% in the past year. Um, but it's very nascent. When you look at all retail packaged uh, meat sales today, plant-based meat accounts for just 2% of that. Um, and what's really driving plant-based meat sales is the refrigerated segment. So there's frozen, there's refrigerated. Uh, the refrigerated plant-based meat is really driving this category's growth with sales up 37%. Um, and that's in comparison to sales in conventional meat, uh, where the category grew just during uh, just 2% during the same period. So that's plant-based meat. Um, sales of plant-based milks have grown 6% over the past year. Uh, now making up, when you look at uh, plant-based milk relative to all fluid milk, plant-based milk on a volume standpoint accounts for 13% of the entire uh, fluid milk category. And so that's um, you know probably the most developed and largest of all the plant-based um, you know categories or segments, and that's you know plant-based milk. Uh, but then there's of course other segments within plant-based dairy or dairy alternatives that are very nascent. So you know plant-based yogurt, ice cream, uh, plant-based cheese, um, uh, you know plant-based uh, uh, you know creamers as well are all very nascent. We're talking, you know, couple percentage points relative to their overall conventional category. So a lot of room for growth. Those are growing by, you know, strong double-digit sales as well. 
there's some tremendous, tremendous uh, variability here. I mean, I find that statistic of 37% growth in the plant-based refrigerated meat category versus 2% growth in animal meat, uh, pretty startling. Um, what do you think is kind of growth? Is it is it health concerns? Is it awareness of climate change, environment? What do you think is behind that? Yeah, you mentioned uh, health. So that's a big reason that plant proteins are really resonating with, with consumers. Um, you know, according to research from Intel, 76% of Americans agree that plant-based foods are healthy. Um, and this very much aligns with, you know, proprietary research that uh, Cargill has undertaken that, um, you know, the move towards, you know, plant-based eating, you know, is really links up with, um, you know, consumers' desire to be healthier. Um, in a survey of close to 2,000 U.S. shoppers, you know, nearly half said that they feel better about eating plant proteins. So health is a big driver, but there's other reasons that are cited by consumers in the research that we did, you know, um, you know, related to uh, ethical concerns, uh, you know, also sustainability is a big piece of this. Uh, so good for the planet, you know, those perceptions. Uh, so those are all big drivers. And of course, you know, I like to say that taste is king. Um, what really makes this possible is that, you know, more and more of these products taste really, really good. And uh, if it weren't for that, uh, we would not see these strong growth rates. Right. So we're getting better at producing products that consumers want to consume. Uh, so there's an emotive element, but then there's just, as you just said, taste is king. There's the real uh, where the rubber meets the road. Um, just uh, it's got to really meet the consumer expectation. So if maybe you could elaborate a little bit more on the sustainability story behind that. I know that uh, Cargill has a, a robust sustainability program, which doesn't only include you know plant-based dairy and meats and so on, but um, with that uh, on consumers' mind, how, how does that play into a little bit more into consumer preferences? Well, sustainability is a factor um, and one that we believe will only grow in importance in the coming years. Um, you know, shoppers or consumers don't just want products that are good for them. Uh, they also expect them to be good for the planet. Um, you know, they're asking questions like, hey, where does my food come from and how is it made? Uh, and they're looking for options, you know, ultimately that align with their values. I mean, this is especially true for, you know, younger shoppers. So, you know, half of millennials will say that, you know, they include ethical and you know, environmentally sustainable in their criteria for, for eating well. So it's important to us to a Cargill, and that's one of the reasons why we've partnered with uh, Pyrus to source pea protein. Um, you know, yellow peas are often grown as cover crops, helping farmers minimize soil erosion and naturally return nitrogen to the soil. Uh, you know, Pyrus has taken the sustainability story one step farther, yeah, raising and manufacturing 100% of its yellow peas in North America. And it's, you know, local sourcing like that that really resonates with consumers. So, you know, across our portfolio pro products, sustainability is in how we operate as a company at Cargill, you know, working to deliver, you know, long-term benefits for farmers, communities, and the planet, all the while, you know, nourishing the world in a safe, responsible, and sustainable way. Right, conscious consumption, it's certainly on the minds of, of many people today as uh, we're dealing with the pandemic and, um, you know, we've got uh, big ocean storms, fires burning, there's some large wildfires uh, burning in my area right now in Colorado. And uh, that brings it very top, top of mind. And if you're a millennial or younger, you're certainly thinking about the future for your own health and family and the planet. So 
when there's this, so there's this conscious consumption element. There's obviously taste, texture, mouthfeel, all of that plays into these, uh, this market growth. But um, there's also access, um, you know, in order, you know, there's a cost factor. So I, can you comment on the formulation costs using using plant proteins? Is it is it cost effective to to be moving more towards uh, plant bases versus um, or maybe in conjunction with complementary with with plant based ingredients or non plant based? Yeah, I mean, as um, you know, investment and innovation and, and understanding, you know, continue to develop, you know, it's just really helping to kind of drive that scale. So when we look to formulate, when we look to partner with the market, you know, I like to say the ultimate job to be done, um, it's what I call DNA, you know, in, in, in the friendliest language or terms possible, it's, you know, hey, help us make our products taste more, more delicious, more delicious. Uh, more nutritious and natural uh, and more affordable. And, you know, it's really not just one of those things uh, standalone. It's really, you know, across the board, you know, we have to touch and check all those boxes. And the other piece too, is that it has to be sustainable. And the other piece, you know, kind of outside that is, is scalable. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of emerging, you know, uh, proteins and this and that, but, um, you know, to really deliver on, on needs today, it has to be, you know, scalable. Yeah, you were talking a little bit about purest pea. Um, there's other sources as well. And, you know, some of those sources are probably used for other technologies as well, too, like corn. Um, what what about the, um, I, you know, I, I guess how how is soy versus pea versus corn um, a, a source material meeting the demand? Sure. When it, well, when it comes to plant protein sources, I mean, soy and pea protein are two of the most common today. Um, but emerging, you know, there are definitely an ever-growing array of choices that are emerging. So uh, like chickpea, fava bean, oat, rice, pumpkin, and more. Uh, but by far, soy remains the most popular. You know, it's been around a long time. It's well-established supply chain. It's highly functional and affordable. Uh, so when it comes to soy, I mean, Cargill offers, you know, several options. You know, there's a, a brand name of Prozante, which is textured soy protein, and Prolia, which is soy flour. Um, and both are very well suited for meat alternatives. Um, and soy flour can also be used in, you know, other beverages, you know, alternative milks, as well as yogurts and frozen desserts. And of course, you know, pea protein um, is gaining a lot of traction in the marketplace. Um, it has you know, functional attributes that are similar to soy. Um, you know, it's a good choice for brands aiming to keep major allergens off product labels. Um, plus options like the Pierce pea protein have the added attraction of being more neutral flavor compared to, to soy. So that clean flavor is one of the key reasons that Car Cargill's partnered with Pierce. Um, you know, Pierce spent years developing non-GMO yellow pea seed varieties, um, especially selected to minimize the off flavors that are normally attributed to pulses. Uh, in addition, you know, it's, it's processed without hexanes uh, to really help bring out the best flavor possible. So you've got that kind of, that clean appeal that consumers are looking for, the label friendly elements that that offers as well as performance. Um, what about, let, let's talk about the sort of the, um, kind of the, the the last uh the last point in the 
the, the, I don't know if it's a triangle or it's a square here where we're talking about, um, you know, health, sustainability, performance, and I guess it's number four, which is really nutrition. Um, I, in the past, a lot of people were perhaps hesitant to, uh, to convert from uh, animal-based uh, protein-type products, whether it was dairy, meat, um, because they maybe were concerned that it wasn't delivering the nutrition. What about plant sources for, uh, for the power-packed element of protein uh, that a body can use? Does it compare? Yeah, friend. I mean, that's really one of the challenges in formulating both dairy uh, and meat alternatives. Um, it's creating a product with what's considered a, a complete protein profile. Um, and what that means is, you know, complete proteins are those sources that have all the amino acids needed for for uh, muscle performance and synthesis in the body. Um, animal proteins are, of course, a really good source of complete proteins, whereas plant proteins are sometimes limited on specific amino acids, you know, depending on their botanical source. Um, you know, soy protein is one of the few plant proteins that's that has that complete protein profile based on the PDCAS. And I had to write down what that what that refers to because I always mess it up. PDCAS, that's the protein digestibility corrected amino acid score. Um, you know, other protein sources such as beans, rice, and potato are considered limiting proteins. So even though it's it's not considered a complete protein, pea protein is another good protein source. Um, the purest pea protein product contains um, at least 80% total protein, which enables formulators to fortify at much higher levels than many other plant protein options. So, you know, pea protein has a high PDCAS score of approximately, you know, 0.8 or 80%, which is higher than other options like chickpea, which is at about a 0.6, fava bean at a 0.6, and oat at about a 0.67. So it's really easy for formulators to make complete protein claims by blending pea protein with a complementary protein source like rice, or you can even add extra pea protein to achieve the target protein claim. So not only is it possible to get that complete protein claim with plants, they can also offer other nutritional benefits. Oftentimes, you know, plant-based plant products are lower in fats and calories uh, than their animal-based counterparts. Um, are there and are there fibers also that are included or is the, the protein completely isolated? Um, it's, you know, I, I don't have a good feel for that at the moment. Um, uh, there's definitely a fiber component in a lot of these end product applications, such as meat alternatives, that might be uh, even advantageous relative to their, you know, conventional counterparts. You know, certainly soy, there's a fiber component to that, yes. Yeah, so there's this broad nutritional profile. It it harkens me back to uh, you know the the early days of Diet for a Small Planet with Francis Moore Lape and complementary proteins. I mean, clearly, clearly there's plenty of data related to the ability of plants to deliver the nutritional requirements that we have uh, for protein. Um, it just that again comes down to. Uh, appropriate formulation. So let's talk about that a little bit more hmm. uh, before we, we close out today. Um, let's, uh, let's address application. What, what kinds of plant proteins are best for various formulation applications? 
Yeah, I mean, when we're talking uh, both soy and pea protein, I mean, both are very versatile with uh, functional properties that allow them to work well in those, you know, spaces of meat and dairy alternatives. Uh, soy protein is highly soluble, so it works really well in beverages, yogurt, and frozen dessert applications. Um, in meat alternative applications, textured soy protein remains the most economical and, you know, versatile plant-based protein. Um, it can be available in numerous shapes, sizes, and even colors, which enables formulators to really mimic meat's natural fibers. Um, pea protein has functional attributes similar to soy, including you know, very good solubility, which is an area plant proteins can fall short. Um, pea protein is a good choice for brands aiming to keep major allergens off product labels too. Um, plus options like the purest pea protein have the additive attraction of that more neutral flavor profile compared to soy. Uh, functionally, pea protein has a lot to offer as well. Um, in addition to that high solubility that I mentioned, it provides really nice you know, texture, emulsification, and water binding properties, uh, all critical attributes for meat and dairy alternative applications. Um, you know, we're also starting to see interest in plant proteins, you know, spill into other categories. So beyond, you know, dairy and meat alternatives into other categories such as snacks and convenience foods. Um, you know, here too, both soy and pea are really good choices. Well, how about um, how about a little bit of future casting here? What do you think the future has in store overall for plant pro for the plant protein market? Yeah, I mean it's it's here to stay. I mean that's my view. You know, you look at the you know couple billion more people that we're going to add to the planet in the next thirty to forty you know years. Um, you know, and especially as consumers come to better understand the value that these ingredients bring. So both from a health perspective, as well as from a sustainability viewpoint, um, demand is going to continue to grow. Um, Inova projects the plant-based market will reach, you know, 480 billion by 2024 with a, you know, projected compound annual growth rate of nearly 14%. So a big reason for that growth is the improvements um, we've made in plant proteins as ingredient suppliers like Cargill have found ways to improve you know, their salability, their mouthfeel, and stability. And as a result, we can now produce dairy and meat alternative products that are much closer to their animal sourced counterparts. So industry is getting there. And when you combine this improved ingredient technology with the knowledge and expertise that Cargill has around texturizers, sweeteners, fats, and oils, I'm confident we can you know, really help brands um, and the industry create plant forward products that um, you know, consumers will keep coming back for more. Wow, the future sounds incredibly bright to to listen to those statistics. Um, you know, not only for our ability to feed a growing population, but to do that healthfully and and more healthfully and sustainably for the planet. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we we close related to the plant based protein market, Mark? It's an exciting space. Lots happening. Um, thank you for the time to uh, to talk a little bit about it. Yeah, I'm so happy to have you here too. It's it's definitely an important topic. Um, so with that, I will bring our podcast today to a close. So I want to thank you again, Mark, for taking the time today. Thank you, Fran. I enjoyed spending the time with you. And I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in today uh, to learn more about plant-based proteins. And before we close, just one more thank you to Cargill for supporting this content. 
and encourage everyone to stay tuned, come back again for future episodes of Supply Side Stories. Thank you for listening to the Supply Side Stories podcast. We are continually looking to improve your podcast experience and want to hear from you, the industry listener. Please take a moment to take our quick survey and provide your feedback at naturalproductsinsider.com slash podcast survey.